What are you doing here? It's challenge day. You know we've influenced nearly every facet of white America. From our music to our style of dress, walk, talk, dress, mannerisms. We enrich your very existence. You should say thank you, man. Welcome to the Black Blue Podcast. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. And as always, we begin by invoking the blessings of the Most High. If there's any good that comes from this, it is only due to the mercy of God. Here we center Black experiences, looking at the impact of and the impact on Blackness. Today, I am happy to have joining me two phenomenal minds, two amazing leaders, Dr. Camila Rashad. She's the founder and president of Muslim Wellness Foundation and Black Muslim Psychology Conference, and Sister Marguerite Hill, the co-founder and executive director of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. Uh, and they are also the founders of the Black Muslim uh, Coalition, which began its life responding to the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black Americans in general and Black Muslims in particular, welcome you both to the Black Blue Podcast. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Wa alaikum salam. So, um, as I was kind of saying offline, I feel like uh, I feel like I am I am busy, but I look at some of the the work that you guys are doing, and I'm like, I, I really don't know. Maybe they have clones. Um, maybe you know. <laughs> Maybe, maybe maybe they're twins. I have twins, you know. I don't know. So maybe they got twins working with them because there's a tremendous amount of work uh, that is going on. Uh, so I first just want to just kind of just tip my my cap to both of you in that regard for the work that you have uh, that you've done, and I want to talk about uh, about the work that you have done uh, individually, uh, but also the work that has brought you together. So I'm going to start with uh, you, uh, Dr. Camila. So. As the uh, founder of the Muslim uh, Wellness Foundation, um, what first off, what was the the impetus for you to uh, begin this particular work and to uh, to, to isolate your 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 lens on on Black Muslims in particular? Yes. So the Muslim Wellness Foundation was established in 2011. Um, in response to really the need to um, begin to think about mental health stigma, um, lack of access to spiritually and culturally competent services um, for American Muslims. Um, and our approach has always been one to understand the influence and the impact of context, culture, identity, um, the history of oppression, of racism um, in this country. Um, so we've always taken um, the position that healing begins by acknowledging what is what is um, called a psychosocial pollutant, right, in the environment that may exacerbate anyone's sort of individual or personal vulnerability. Um, and, and in that way, reducing some of the stigma around mental health. Um, I had someone tell me, you know, I've been anxious for a very, very long time. This is an African-American woman. Um, and I thought I was failing, you know, and living up to the strong black woman, right, sort of ethos, if I began to take medication. She said, I would go from being a strong black woman to a weak white girl. Mm. Um, and we, so we needed to understand how health, how wellness, healing and identity were linked um, and how to, in some ways, decouple 
the stigma around seeking help and seeking services um, as it relates to those identities. Um, so we established the Black Muslim Psychology Conference um, actually in response to the Baltimore uprising. Um, it was mm. the 150th anniversary of Juneteenth. Um, it was also held on the first Friday of Jumwa that year. Um, and so we thought like this is this is a really auspicious day um, given sort of what our communities are experiencing in this moment. Um, so it's sort of in our kind of organizational history to respond to the moment, both in the immediate and in the long term, um, with the goal of how do we promote healing and well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, Sister Margaret, uh, the work that you have done with Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, uh, we took we think about um, what was what was the the term, Dr. Camilla, uh, the pollutants, doc, um, psychosocial pollutants, psychosocial pollutants. I I don't know if racism would be like or white supremacy would be like the the number one psychosocial pollutant. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so the work that you have done, um, Sister Marguerite, in addressing. Um, racism uh, outwardly, but also inwardly, you know, within the, the, mm-hmm. the Muslim community. Can you talk about the, the the origins of, you know, when you set your sights on that and said that this is something that we need to make a, a, a full-time and consistent endeavor? Um, wh- wh- how did that come about? Yeah, well, what started out as a group, it was a multiracial group of folks who wanted to address anti-blackness that we were seeing coming from the Muslim community on social media. And so we had launched in 2014, a series of hashtag campaigns. And the first one was being black and Muslim. And we left it neutral with a variety of different prompts. And what we found was um, incredible pride in in people who were black and Muslim and their heritage. Um, and what we were doing across community, but there was also this heartbreak and it's the kind of heartbreak, the kind of betrayal and um, Dr. Camilla uh, Rashad, she talks about, like she's, she's mentioned the kind of intergroup betrayal that we've experienced as black Muslims of experiencing racism and, and that our faith has an anti-racism ethos in itself from seventh century. And, and it's been very powerful and people would kind of cite that, not just Bilal, but like, oh yes, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, mm-hmm. he dealt with that. So we don't need to deal with it anymore. But yet, you know, like our children's were being called, um, you know, slaves in Arabic or in different racial slurs in, in, um, from non-Black Muslims. And so um, we found that, like the hashtag itself, it trended globally. Um, there was a lot of heartbreak. We And from there, um, a few of us, we, we figured there, this was the mantle. This was, this was something we had to really deal with and work on this full time. And so after that, after that hashtag within, um, you know, within, by the end of the month, um, Namir and I, and myself, we decided, you know, we're going to start this human rights education organization and, um, and we're really going to focus on training leaders who could go back to their communities and first and foremost address anti-blackness because that's that is the fulcrum of white supremacy and um you know from that year we focused on heritage campaigns 
and had people explore the multiple dimensions of of how racism shows up within Muslim communities. And by 2015, that's when we incorporated as a nonprofit in Michigan. And by that year, it became my full-time work. Mm, mm. Um, when it comes to the inter... Well, it should seem pretty obvious to anybody you know, with, uh, with eyes. Uh, they see the intersection between the, uh, the uh, uh, emotional well-being, mental and emotional well-being, and spiritual well-being, and the the impact that white supremacy and racism has had on our country, in particular, our nation. Uh, we see how it's played out in our history, and we see how that it is something that exists within the Muslim community. How, uh, when you merge these two things uh, together, um, what is the response uh, that you all are seeing um, with regard to taking these things up as centering, centering them around uh, blackness. Um, is there a, a rejection of that, you know, to say that, you know, by, 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 by centering blackness, you know, uh, within these, these areas that somehow it is a, a sense of a privilege uh, maybe, or that it's ignoring the existence of bias towards others Um and, I, and I'm only asking for the sake of, for, of yeah. hearing your response to the question because oh, yeah. I would normally give people the hand when they... <laughs> well, when we launched Being Black and Muslim, I mean, there we had a boycott from, um, you know, even folks that we had in the Bay Area from from um, surprising, like, Latino Muslims that felt we were d divisive for mm. bringing that up. And so, um, and then, and so when I had heard from a member, she was South Asian background, and she was, you know, when she tried to highlight like because we had a, a latino panel that year and they were just like nope we're not going to do it so and uh, it was like a mixed thing we had like the oh we're being divisive we're airing dirty laundry whether that was like the black and nsa whether being black and muslim like these were things that were just supposed to be dealt with quietly mm -hmm. um and so you know i mean over the years and and um Dr. Camilla could speak to that because I, I think for when, when some people felt that Muslim Mark was co conf, uh, confrontational um, by just sharing people's stories, um, you know, some people had reached out to her about, you know, when they didn't necessarily want to deal with the agitation that um, both like our, our hashtag campaigns or letter writing campaigns um, caused. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and for, for folks who have um, an issue or they feel really strongly that highlighting these concerns in some way damages the community, the question that I always have for them, right? I'm a, I'm a psychologist, I'm a therapist, so I try to flip the question back mm -hmm. and I ask them, what, what about this conversation is so uncomfortable for you, mm. right? Because sometimes we, as Black Muslims, when we say, Centering Black Muslims, you know, I, I very proudly wear a shirt that says very Black, very Muslim um, that was um, created by one of our deeply rooted fellows. And, and it, it always sort of elicits some kind of response, right? And when people really feel like, oh, well, that's just, that's not fair, right? Why should we be talking about you? Well, why not? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, what, what about being very explicit about the unique intersection of race and religion in this country causes so much discomfort. 
um, because when there are folks who are celebrating their heritage, whether that be Pakistani, um, Palestinian, right, people are very much in support of the celebration of their very unique and and rich cultural heritages. Um, What becomes exposed when we're talking about Black Muslims broadly or African-American Muslims specifically, what it unearths is the feeling that, one, we have no culture, we have no history worthy of respect, Mm -hmm. right? And that we are in some way, um, that we, we should be silent because we've been sort of given um, permission just to exist, right? So what what you see start to emerge in people's response is their implicit bias. And, you know, Marguerite talks about this and, and goes into much depth about this in anti-racism trainings. Um, it's really more of an examination of your your privileges, your blind spots, your areas of growth when it comes to understanding a racial analysis in this country. Um, what we see even now in the National Black Muslim COVID Coalition um, are those who are wondering, like, why, well, we already have a National Muslim COVID-19 Task Force. Hmm. Why would we need a, 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 a coalition that's specifically concerned and addressing the needs of Black Muslims in this country? I think the, the answer, right, becomes evident when you look at the information that's being disseminated. You, when you look at who's involved in the conversation that shapes policy, right, that shapes the recommendations that may then go to, um, say, local, state, and national government. Mm-hmm. If we're not paying attention to class, race, health, systemic, you know, and structural racism, um, religion, right, we're, we're not, are we talking about the rights of prisoners um, who may not be able to practice Ramadan, right, the month of fasting in the way that they they should be allowed to um, because we're not advocating for their rights as incarcerated citizens. So when we talk about centering Black Muslims, it's not, it's not with this very superficial, like, oh, I just want to wave a flag and I just want to, you know, talk about being pie, right? <laughs> this, is, this is about life and death, you know, right. honestly, um, because if we're not paying attention to these issues, we cannot sort of turn to anyone else and say, oh, well, that person, right, will, will bring this up. Right. Or that person will make known our concerns and ensure that we're not being um, uh, erased. The last thing I'll say is that um, and this is why the anti-racism training is so important, because there is an abundance of research. Right. Psychological research, mental health research that talks about what's called intersectional invisibility. Right. So intersectionality is sort of a term that's like it's overused now is not well understood. Um, It's not simply, oh, I have more than one identity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But intersectional invisibility um, means that if we as Black Muslims, right, are both a racial and religious minority, right? And because of, you know, I would say in response to a lot of the Islamophobic, you know, propaganda, um, but also aspirational whiteness on the part of our non-Black co-religionists, it's led to this sort of um, minimization or erasure of the history and the legacy and the impact of Black Muslims. Mm-hmm. So when you ask someone, right, what, what did, just do a free association, what, what immediately comes to mind when you think American Muslim, right? I can bet nine times out of 10, right, if not 10 times out of 10, 
they are not thinking about right marguerite they're not thinking yeah. about me <laughs> they're not thinking about um they're not thinking about you ma'am i'm sorry it's not personal um no. and so <laughs> so so we we are not even images that come to mind right yeah. so unless you win we, a gold medal if you win a gold medal well <laughs> Well, but but even then, and internationally yeah. known, but you even, even then, our sister Ipti, that's true. Right. <laughs> yeah. but, but even then, our sister Ipti has she wrote yeah. a book, right, mm-hmm. talking right. about how people are so uncomfortable when she speaks of her experience as an African American Muslim woman, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it is it is so being raised broadly, right, as a religious minority in this country, and within our religious minority communities. Right. This also happens with black Jews, right? They, yeah. they discuss mm-hmm. very similar dynamics. Um, and so when we're trying to really tease apart the impact of intersectional visibility, it is the layers of trauma that you experience, even having to then justify your existence, right? Or prove that you deserve to be thought of and, and regarded in the same way as other human beings. That can, is that is a trauma that you, we Dr. Yes. Camila, let, let, let me yes. let me pose this. I was listening to an interview, um, social service organization led by led, led by uh, an African American woman and two women, and they mm-hmm. kept they kept referring to black and brown, black and brown. And the mm-hmm. reason I, I'm bringing this up, and I'd like uh, both of your insights on this, is this a um, is this kind of a tale to the there's a bit of reticence in speaking directly to the concerns of of black people um, and that in order to advocate it's not it's not acceptable to advocate or speak directly of blackness without including something else uh, some other group uh, mm-hmm. with it is that a kind of a a, a telltale of uh, of that psychological trauma or is that or do you see that more as just evidence of the, of the way uh color um or, or the minimization political minim- mm-hmm. uh, minimization in, in the language that we use uh, around uh discussing the concerns of, of black folks to kind of push them to the back or not make them front and center yeah as, as a californian you know even that framing is, is deeply troubling i mean because we have like an asian large asian population and the ways that that's experienced amongst like, you know, like even like with COVID among among Asian uh, Pacific Islanders, we have a large Filipino community. And so, and they're like direct line as nurses, as delivery people, like they have the same, like, even like that whole thing of, you know, so sometimes when you get to the specificity, even of like certain identities and specifically like Asian identities, and then you could go into like drill down into Cambodian or Filipino communities and they have different education outcomes, health outcomes than other than East Asians. So similarly, when we're talking about people of color, you know, like you could have that category, the category black, indigenous, native people of color, and we're all experiencing different things and you know racism and white supremacy in very distinct ways white supremacy has specific logics in the ways that people particular communities have to navigate white supremacy it's different and then when we just kind of use these blanket terms and knowing that there's certain communities that in this case 
you know, especially, you know, the, the, the outcomes of, of the mortality rates of, of black people is much higher. And that includes yeah. Somali. So like, even despite what some people may want to say about cuisine and whatnot, you know, like you have the Somali community is suffering so much death at this time. And so, you know, we're talking about race and diaspora, but I think it's still important for us to really drill down and identify the ways that systemic racism and anti-blackness is the fulcrum of white supremacy. And then when you start to deal with those issues, when we deal with the social issues, when we deal with the policies that impact black people, it doesn't leave people out. I mean, and, and I think it's, while it's it's very noble, like there's some people like they, they, their constituents, you know, like, so they may be speaking to their constituents if they have black and Latino, or like they're making this amorphous black, brown category which erases a lot of diversity globally, but it's just like, so if their constituents are Latino, okay, I can understand that, you know, like, and you know, there is deep overlap, but if there's, you know, and if, but if they're conflating Arab, South Asian, Latino, yes, uh, you know, like that within itself is, is, is problematic. And, and then what doesn't help is that, um, even like the similar, like the term when we talk about people of color and if we act as if our whole experiences are all the same, then when it comes to policies, then, you know, there will be black people that will be left out, you know, like if mm -hmm. we're not having specific discussions to, to address um, whether you're talking about gentrification, whether you're talking about health outcomes, you know, you have to have very culturally specific solutions when it yes. comes to systemic change. And that's something that's that's missing in these discussions. And I and I think that that's where like anti-blackness shows up with the discomfort mm -hmm. that people have with addressing issues that particularly just the pointed nature of systemic anti-blackness. And then they overlook the ways that other communities, because of whether it's the immigration narrative, have been pitted mm -hmm. against, you know, black people in that and so like if we just use that term we're not gonna really like look at who's all been complicit in this system and this is where i think when we start talking about anti-blackness and healthcare, and given the large percentage one the large percentage of black people that are muslim right 20 to 25 percent but if you consider the significant percentage of muslims in the healthcare system mm. right yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're talking yeah. about a system that has bias in it. And you have a large portion of our faith community that's participating in a system that has bias. And so it behooves us as black Muslims to make sure that whether we're as black people or people were before social distancing, we had to pray side by side by these folks and send our children to similar schools. And we're working in institutions and we're building political power. And you could see the con consistent exclusion and marginalization of black Muslim voices. It does mm -hmm. not help us as just saying black and brown, because we are not experiencing that the same way. Mm. The, the one thing I'll add to that is um, at, I looked about two weeks ago when we started to see more of a targeted um, outreach to, to black Americans because of the, the data on racial disparities in the number of infection and, and death. Right. Um, a lot of sort of the the conversation I saw was very Christian centric, right? Was really 
not acknowledging Christian hegemony, right? Because if we're, if we, again, if we're talking about kind of being inclusive of all spirit, the spiritual diversity of the Black and African American community, then we're also going to raise concerns about, you know, if we're distributing food, are we making sure that we're not including pork, mm. right? Are we making sure that when we talk about clergy, we're not using that as a shorthand for Christian clergy, right? right? Are we talking about, you know, then acknowledging sort of the educational needs of, of Black Muslim students? So, so we're, we're kind of trying to combat this on, on two fronts, right? That the larger Black community tends to um, not be aware of their Christian privilege, and that the larger American Muslim community um, is is lacking right, in in understanding why when they say you know we're a nation of immigrants and we came here we're good Americans mm-hmm. why we give them a side eye right right like why we say like come on now right y- y'all need to put that, that little tired line to bed <laughs> <laughs> you know because some of us did not come here voluntarily That's right? right um so. And, and some of us, you know, were victims of genocide as a result. So we need to be just a little bit more conscientious. And for Black Muslims, you know, I think, you know, one, one of the things I tweeted the other day was that my 70-year-old daughter, she's like, Mommy, you are the queen of, like, Black Muslim everything. Black, you always say Black Muslim. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that is very on brand for me to always say Black Muslim. <laughs> and I said, it is because we live in a country where the hyphen is always required of us. Right. I can't just walk about in the world and be like, oh, I'm American. Right. I'm, oh, I'm just Muslim. Right? right. Because I know that that is also sort of uh, indicative of a politics that is not mine. Right. I'm very proud of being black. I'm very proud of being Muslim. And so when I say that, it's very intentional, it's very political. And the discomfort that people demonstrate when you say black specifically, right, yeah. is also emblematic of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you all, um, one of the, the things that I have noticed um, uh, throughout my time uh, as host and uh, producer of Radio Islam, I talked to, I talked to a number of you know, uh, thought leaders, uh, activists, uh, and, 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 and politicians, and just, you know, just folks from just about every uh, background. But when it came to those who were like putting in, putting in that work, um, frontline organizationally it seems like i want to say about 80 percent and and this is not me making a generalization about my brothers at all but lots of women lots of women that are leading the charge you know that are you know like on the the the, the tip of the spear so to speak talk to me explain uh how those those moments where you realize that or if this is the case, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, where gender becomes an, an issue that you're having to confront uh, in these spaces, you know, because I know uh, you all are in spaces where you may be the only one of us in those in that particular space. So how does how how does gender uh, uh, how, what's the, that, that subtext like, you know, how how do you see that being injected into the way people are responding to you, to, to your expertise, to the work. Um, yeah. Can you talk a bit about that? Marguerite, you want to pick that one up first? Where do I start? You know, um, you know, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the primary, while my work is focused on race at this time, I mean, I, I began, you know, like I, I started my work in the academy in, in a academic program, actually a PhD program looking at both like transformations of Islamic learning, Muslim networks, I'm qualified to teach Islamic studies, you know, like the history of Islam and Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, and studied with traditional folks, you know, both in, in, in Karouane and in Egypt, you know, Azhari scholars. So, so, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's been, you know, it is very tricky, you know, like as a Muslim to be, be in that world. Right. And, and, um, you know, and then going into starting an education organization, which, you know, when you think about like education, it seems like, okay, like that wouldn't be something that's so threatening to people. But, um, you know, like, I mean, I've had, even though like I'm qualified, right, to teach college level courses on religious studies, Islamic studies, there are people that still would doubt my credentials of being able to talk about religious things um, and history, like my historical knowledge. But I think that there are certain aspects where, where, the quality of my work and the quality like of what I produce. So if you even look back at like whether I'm writing informally, it's like usually well researched, you know. So it's like there was, you know, I think that the, that for for me it's been about having to work twice as hard to to really be like, okay, this argument is laid out this way and this is the proof and these are all the things. And so, you know, having to navigate that it, it is the amount of having to, to deliver on work, having to assure both men and women who internalize their own misogyny, right? And like level that out at like other women, um, you know, having to, to navigate that and to be like, okay, this is the primary motivation of me doing this work is not just, I mean, my daughter, you know, and all of our children. And so for me, the, the, as somebody that's chosen to be Muslim, I know that all these little ones don't, haven't had that choice. And I've seen the impact, right, of like when we neglect building for them in the current day mm -hmm. and also for the future. And so what I try to do, um, my leadership style is, is not just, um, is not about um, convincing somebody that I'm right and they're wrong but really identifying our shared vision for what we want in the community. And for them, you know, so I try to do that kind of that storytelling where they, they know, and they, and I think that a lot of people have seen um, my own personal struggles in the public light. And that hasn't been something to be that, that hasn't been doubted. So like, um, but navigating the, the ideas that, you know, sisters, we should know our place right you know which is either we're teaching children or we're serving food in the iftar lines well right now we still got to serve food in the iftar lines but we we have people that we need to have strategic coordination of doing that so people don't get sick while we're serving food and then teaching our children we have we have so many people at different levels institutionally mm -hmm. who are building institutions for our children and so for me i i i think within the kind of public kind of political world as I have to like I bridge multiple spaces whether that's like interfaith multi-faith because I don't do interfaith work I do multi-faith organizing mm -hmm. for justice yeah. um and I do you know and then I work 
in solidarity with people from the um, the kind of multiracial Muslims, but also South Asian and Middle Eastern folks who are organizing against Islamophobia and racism against people from South Asia, the Middle East and Africa. And I also work within the Muslim community. And so what I do like within the black Muslim community specifically. And so, um, you know, that, that's a lot to navigate. And sometimes, you know, like I, I get whiplash dealing with, with the, <laughs> you know, whoa, where did that come from? You know, like, I mean, the microaggressions are plenty and it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, but what gives me life, right, is knowing like one, I'm not alone and my faith values, right? Like whatever the outcome that Allah knows I tried and I tried my best mm -hmm. to build something because something was passed on to me you know, people had struggled and they passed on institutions to me. And I'm looking at my generation, I'm like, what do we build? Right. And so I have the imperative mm. to continue this work, right? And then so so there's there's a lot that's there. And I and and I look to like sister Aisha Adoia and I'm just like, that sister did that for like how how can I be like her yeah, yeah. down the mm -hmm. road? You know, like our elder sisters who held it down and they spoke up. It was um Dr. Camille, you have to remind me, um but Suad Abdul Khabir's mom, she brought that letter. Oh, sister, Sister Amina Abdul Haq. Amina Abdul Haq brought that letter, our call to justice letter, to those imams in New York to sign. Mm -hmm. I just remember that when all those decades she fought, you know, and she struggled. And look at the her daughters, right? Mm -hmm. That is the type of thing that gives me life. So I can like if she could navigate what she navigated, yeah. I could do it too. And that's just yeah. my duty. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Dr. Camila? Yes, you know, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, one kind of honor what Marguerite is expressing because it, it is it is the, the, the push and the pull, right, of feeling the obligation, feeling sort of the call to action, um, and also feeling the exhaustion when when the folks that you are ultimately serving um, don't appreciate you, right? Mm. Or kind of struggle again with their own internalized, like you said, internalized misogyny that says, "Well, sister, maybe you should you should just maybe not be so loud, right? Or or maybe if if your voice was a little softer, right? Then maybe that'll make it a little more palatable for folks." Um, I, my sort of historical role model since I was a very little girl has always been Harriet Tubman. Mm. And there was, she was literally a straight shooter, right? She's like, look, listen, we trying to get to this freedom. Mm -hmm. You can come with me, but what you're not gonna do is jeopardize anybody else, right? right. So I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of, of sort of that school <laughs> of liberation, <laughs> you know? which says like, you, it's okay. You don't got to come with me, right? right? But you're not going to harm anybody here, right? While you have your tantrum. Right. And so I think when, when, when women, when black women, when black Muslim women are sort of trying to, you know, it's almost like navigating like this minefield, right? Whether it's our personal lives, it's our professional lives, it's, you know, wanting and to be treated with the respect that we deserve and that we've earned, um, we have to do a lot of sort of like ego checking ourselves, 
right? We eat a lot of humble pie because we think about <laughs> what is the, what is the overall mission, right? You know, I, come on, I'm just being, <laughs> you know, when, yeah. when someone, when we're saying, okay, I have to really be intentional and strategize about how I'm going to bring this initiative, this effort, this project to brother so-and-so, right? Because we don't want him to think that um, we're disregarding his work. We want to acknowledge, you know, his importance and his value and his contributions. Like, I mean, this is women organizers who are also strategizing around managing personalities, yeah. right? And all of that goes into the work and what we end up finding. And I, and I have to say that it was Brother Lukman Abduhak, right, who said just a couple of <laughs> weeks ago that he said, you know, my wife organizes like the men's health sort of gathering every year. He said, you know what? The women do the work and the men show up. Mm -hmm. Right. And he, and he said that like, not in a humorous way, like not like really ironically, just kind of just made a statement. And, you know, it kind of struck me like, Oh wait, so y'all know that happens? Like y'all, y'all know what that, that, <laughs> anybody that comes is? out the black, <laughs> anybody that comes out the black church, um, yes. you know where the bulk of the, the work is getting done at. Right. And so, you know, part of that, and, and I don't want to sort of make light because I think what's happening is that there's, there's also this, um, when we don't talk about, at least for African-American Muslims, right? If we don't talk about the sources of power that black men feel that they can tap into, right? Mm -hmm. it, it sort of, the, the spotlight is, is then shining on the Muslim community, right? Well, I can have power in this very specific sphere, and I might feel very threatened about my ability to exercise that power and authority if I'm being challenged by a woman that is very well educated, mm -hmm. um, can communicate very clearly, um, who speaks very decisively, right? When we speak, we don't have sort of this question mark in our, you know, at the end of our sentences, right? Mm -hmm. We're making a statement, not a question. Yeah. Um, and that can become very uncomfortable um, for, for both men and women. Right. And, and, and the sense is like, who does she think she is? I'm <laughs> like, I'm, I'm my mama's daughter. That's who I am. <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, it's hard to navigate. And, and I have to say just, you know, similar to Marjorie that what keeps sort of the, the fuel in my tank um, is that there are always people watching, right. That there, there are those who recognize and appreciate when, you know, we, when sister Amina, um, supported us in that letter. Um, she said, I'm so proud of you, right? I'm so proud of all of you, right? Like we had sort of picked up, you know, I, and I hope that she is pleased with what we've done. Um, we've picked up sort of her legacy, right? And said, you did not do that without us noticing. And, and we're mm -hmm. honoring you by continuing the work in this way. Um, and so it's for sisters like Sister Amina Abduhak, um, Sister Aisha Adwia, like, they're the one I can imagine. I cannot imagine, right, what it was like for those women, like of that caliber and of intelligence and of confidence and passion in 1970. Yeah. Right. So yeah. when when I when I feel like my nerves are being plucked, I think about that. <laughs> are there moments where and I mean I know um, I'm gonna reserve my own uh, commentary on this, but are there moments where you resent the struggle overall, you know, you point back to what it must have been like, been like for Sister Amina back in the in the seventies, uh, and you fast forward today, twenty twenty, and it is not enough to be 
intelligent. It is not enough to be articulate. It is not enough to have uh, the academic uh, distinction and achievement, you know, to be uh, at, at the top of your of your field uh, to, you know, to to know what you are talking about, to be capable. It, that is not enough. There is still the the uh, the nonsense. Yeah, I almost I almost used some different language. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, is there ever a point where you know you say like you know you, you become resentful of I'm I'm still struggling. I've inherited a struggle. You know how how have how far have we moved uh, the needle forward, or or are you able to see how the needle has been moved forward? Well, I think seeing the needle moving forward is what keeps me putting one foot in front of the other. Um, so I, I would, I, I mean, I, I would just be very honest, like with you, with the listeners that um, it is very frustrating, right? There, and, and there are moments when I think like, does this even matter? Right. Is, is this important? Right. Is this, is this, is this a pursuit of my ego or is this really me sort of fulfilling the mission and the call that I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed on my heart? Um, and so it's, it's a constant um, self-reflection. Um, it's a constant sort of evaluation and awareness of, you know, when I'm feeling particularly bothered, right? Is it because that is something that is standing in the way of the work or because I'm looking to be um, admired or, you know, for people to give me those accolades? So, I, you know, we're human. Like we struggle with our mouths. Like we struggle with those things. Right. Um, but I think what what becomes like particularly hard, especially in times of crisis like now, is is the battle of the egos, honestly, of men. Mm. And, you know, that we, Margie and I have very much kind of similar leadership styles and we always say we, right? We say we, everything. Um, and that is very intentional, that's very specific. Um, and it is as a reminder that I, I could not do anything alone, right? right? So it mm. is always we. Um, and we want as many people to be included in that we as possible. However, we're still kind of tiptoeing around things um, that are gender-based, that are about, you know, how Black women are treated and respected, um, about tropes about Black women just being too difficult, too headstrong, too stubborn, too loud, right? We're always combating those things. Yeah. So, you know, we're trying to be soft and meek and, you know, soothing and, and all of these things, right? Because people are uncomfortable with our power. And when we're navigating those things, it takes a toll on you mentally, right? Emotionally. And it is always going back to, you know, is Allah pleased with this, right? right. Is, is, is Allah going to, you know, bless these efforts? because we're helping the believers um and so it is with that in mind that you know i can sort of say like i i know some people are gonna be feeling some kind of way um but he tells us that if if we are like one body the believers right then we should all be feeling this way and feeling a sense of urgency and we need to you know like brother malcolm said we need to put all of those divisions right that that our sort of personal idiosyncrasies and conflicts, we need to put that to the side mm -hmm. to solve this unending hurt of our people in America. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Sister Marguerite, did you have anything you wanted to, uh, you know, add to that? Any reflection on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, in a lot of ways, our work and our leadership style is really about building leaders. I mean, that's the kind of women, like as Muslim women, the leadership style that we have, or even in this work, and it can be kind of frustrating because in some ways that we may have to deal with kind of with with some of the egos with some of the um people being intimidated by being you know by too highly educated and dr camilla has even more education i i remember when i was in a phd program and the type of animosity i got generally and questions about my faith Mm-hmm. Um, as, as a Stanford graduate student, I, w- I was just really shocked, you know, because there was derision for me coming from as a working class background, you know, from coming from a working class background. And then when I do something with myself, then there's still derision in this way. And because I have Western education, then somehow I'm corrupted. But then when I'm working in community, right, you know, like, in this, and, and it just depends on what place that they wanted to have me in. Um, and what I what I've really turned to is, is really this idea of working to in the collaborative, working to have do this collective work, coalition work, co-powering, right? And um, where all of our stories matter. And then there's some people, maybe they have authoritarian tendencies, you know, like, and, and for me, that's, that's just part and parcel of, of uh, the kind of capitalist, uh, white supremacist um, script of, you know, that if this one person has the light, then we're all in the shadows. Or um, if a sister built something and I didn't build it, then why am I going to join? But no one, like if people aren't stepping up and to build an infrastructure for us to find our voice and to amplify our voice and to build power, and we're just sitting there waiting for somebody else, and we can't just sit in the corner and pontificate anymore. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in a crisis. Right. And people are losing their lives. And the outcomes of this, we have yet to see. I mean, we know like the, the recovery is going to be really intense. And either we're going to co-create better and stronger communities, or some of our communities are just going to crumble. Like our institutions, our organizations will crumble under the weight. And so for for me, it's, it's really leadership. Um, as a woman, I, I draw a lot of my strength and that understanding of, of my leadership style um, and, you know, doing the Black Muslim COVID coalition is really a love letter to my people because mm-hmm. I've been spending all these years, right, working in coalition, both, you know, mainly training non, non-Black Muslims and non-black people on how not to be anti-black and not how not to internalize their racism and dealing with their stuff so that they could be better allies for black people. Mm. Because there's a lot, a lot of black people are looking to their leadership and looking to their affirmation. So I was just like, okay, let me go over there and deal with this stuff right here. But like a huge part of Muslim arts mission is supporting black leadership because we've internalized a lot of stuff as black Muslims. And so, yeah. This work for in this coalition work is my love letter to black people who I love. And sadly, I've just seen a lot of internalized anti-blackness, internalized feeling of, of not being capable of rising to this moment 
and saying, look, I could help my neighbor. I could help my family. I could be a leader in this moment. And so for me, the disappointment that I have is that folks, maybe their limited understanding of leadership and then also not stepping in in the ways that they can. And so the, the biggest frustration I would have is as someone who has limited time, my daughter's eight years old. I don't want to waste her time, and I don't want to put her as make her life right now as a sacrifice towards work where people may not understand their own power. That we power each other, mm. and so. But I, I do see we're moving the needle. I do get hope. I do get hope from from people that are finding their own voice, who are finding their own leadership journey. Um, but at the end of the day. If I was only looking for people's affirmation and applause, I would definitely not be doing this. I'd work on my singing voice. I would have had a different, totally different career. Like it would have been, because this is not really about, I can't sing either, but you know, I would have been like something. I don't know. I could have, it would have been bad. It would have been auto-tune. But you know, like I'm not here for the adoration of people. I'm really here to be like, how is my life going to be meaningful? So, you know. I, I really, I really appreciate. Um, let me just, just <laughs> go, go, go ahead, Dr. Miller. Let me, let me just say that because the, the last thing that Marjorie said, I, I, I wouldn't want people to take that as like disregard. I mean, if one, if anyone has ever worked with Marjorie, she's very sensitive to, you know, people's feelings, their emotions, how they may perceive things. So for her to say, I'm not here for the adoration of anyone is that's not sort of like, that's not a, a bragging kind of arrogant statement. It's very much like, I believe in you. I believe in this work, right? And I'm, I'm even willing to, again, like I said, kind of take a step back and say, well, what can I do differently so that this person feels included and feels valued? I mean, this is so many of our conversations, right? Like the reason why she does so many, just reaching out one-on-one, -on -one, right? We can send a, a group text or a group email um, and then Marguerite will go and say, okay, who didn't respond? Let me check in with that person. And we have now almost like over 40 people in our coalition. Wow. Right. So, and she's yeah. homeschooling an eight year old and she's doing, you know, Muslim art work still. So yeah. when, when we say that it is not about us, it truly is like, it's, this is it's not, it's what do I want for the future? You know, inshallah of my children, of my grandchildren, of my great grandchildren, Right. Like we know one of my favorite Toni Morrison quotes from an interview that she did. Um, she said, till the soil. Right. Like, let me what do what can I do now? What can I plant now so that those who come after me? Right. Things will be a little different in yeah. some way. Right. So till the soil. And that's that's what we're doing. Like we need everybody to kind of want to get in there, get their hands dirty. Um, and so there may be hits that we have to take so that our daughters at least will have to take different kind of hits, like not the same thing. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so I, I, just wanted, I just wanted to make that point. No, Thank wonderful, you. wonderful. Um, <laughs> you know, as, as somebody with, with, you know, with three of them, you know, three, three daughters, I, I think about, um, you know, just the importance of, you know, as a man, you really don't know what you're fighting for if you are not in constant communication with the women in your life. Um, mm. And then, you know, you know, expand it, you know, community wise. And I, and I think that that certainly goes both ways. 
um, that we don't know, you know, as a collective, we don't know what we're fighting for if we're not connected to one another. If we don't realize, mm-hmm. you know, what, are, what what's the common ground? You know, what what is the potential reality beyond the space that we're in that we're in? You know, and then we're able to see how to u- utilize our individual um, uh, talents and abilities for the collective, you know, in, in a cooperative manner. Um, so we did not talk. I mean, we've mentioned it. We didn't really talk about the uh, uh, the Black Muslim uh, COVID. Uh, well, just in general, the Black Muslim the, the coalition itself. Um, and we've we've mentioned it, but we want folks to uh, definitely support that work and and uh, and to be able to keep up with it. So I want to say this now before you know before we before we end. Um, Folks can find the uh, the Black Muslim COVID Coalition on all social media platforms from uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Dr. Dr. Camila, Sister Marguerite, you want to shout out uh, those uh, the handle? Yes, on Twitter, go to at BM Coalition. Um, on Instagram and Facebook, we're at Black Muslim Coalition. Um, you can also go to our website, BlackMuslimCoalition.com. Um, You'll find a lot of information about, you know, our theory of change, our vision, our immediate goals. Um, we've done webinars and radio shows. We've been talking about the importance of focusing on and centering Black Muslims and how we're going to be impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and as we lift up the concerns of Black Muslims, it will be a benefit to to everyone, to all members of our community. Um, so we want people to learn more about who we are and, and what we're fighting for. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I am an absolute 100 uh, percent supporter uh, member, if they let me keep hanging around um, of this coalition. <laughs> um, and uh, I continue to be inspired by uh, you all's leadership and all of the energy and all of the, um, you know, just the uh, the enthusiasm and the, the leadership, because I, I really believe in participatory leadership, you know, and I see that in this uh, in this body. So I am absolutely praying that Allah blesses it to to deliver on its potential uh, and, and, and that those who come behind, that they find the needle way further than than we found it right uh inshallah inshallah <laughs> so tell everybody before before you all before you all go uh let folks know how to keep up with you on social media um if you will and any upcoming projects you know what i didn't mention i did not mention this upcoming webinar um oh yes yeah, yeah. so let's 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 fall back <laughs> <laughs> let's fall back and mention that um uh, who wants to take that? Okay, so our upcoming webinar on COVID-19's disproportionate impact on Black Muslims with the Black Muslim COVID Coalition, Muslim Wellness Foundation, ISPU, Muslim ARC, um, that is April 21st at 12 p.m. Eastern. That is 2 p.m. Central Time and 12 p.m. Pacific Standard. So you can find out more oh, by going oh, through SPU. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that's that's 12 oh, p.m. You almost got it. That's 12 p.m. <laughs> uh, Pacific. It's 2 p.m. Huh? Central and 3 p.m. Eastern. 
Yeah. Yes. Okay. Oh, sorry, right. I did. I did the yeah too. No, that's great. Did I say three? Yeah, I went right. I went first East Coast, and yeah. I went Central. No, you okay. went. You went East Coast first, but you said twelve o'clock. Right. Oh. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So we got to do that right. You. You gonna have to edit it. No, you that's fine. Do it? I'm not even gonna edit it. I'm just gonna leave it just like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh no. Uh, Time zones. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the lot. Um, uh, yes. I, so I, I really appreciate, uh, the opportunity to, uh, to have you both on the program, Dr. Camila, Sister Magri. Uh, I am definitely praying for your continued well-being. Uh, may Allah keep you energized, uh, keep you pointing, uh, towards the, towards the goal, uh, and, and yes. bless, bless all of this, this work. Um, cause this is work that anybody that's engaged in it, uh, myself included, it is, it's work that you have to have, uh, a, a deep, and um, an abiding love in order to, to to be in this. So may Allah keep that love in your hearts, uh, all of our hearts. Inshallah. So, Amen. All right. Amen. Uh, family, I appreciate you all joining us for another edition of the Black Glue Podcast. Uh, as I told you before, uh, if there's any benefit that has come from this, it is only due to the mercy of the Most High. Uh, if there are any mistakes, well, then I guess uh, those go. those are ours, and we have to work on on correcting them next time. So uh, remember to follow us on social media: uh, Twitter, Black Glue Podcast. That's uh, glue without the e, G L U, Black Glue Podcast. Uh, Instagram, Black Glue Podcast, and Facebook, Black Glue Podcast. All right, until next time, uh, we're gonna leave you as we greeted you. Assalamualaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. First off, all praises Allah saved him The black man and African from enslavement So I love this thing can never deface it But some of y'all that follow us hella racist Face it, we was taught to hate black So the lighter you is, the more you attract I'm finna pull coats here and choke fear When the smoke clear, we still black, so oh dear Why my skin breathing grease? All we want is a who would